And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, April 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how DHS encourages software startups to remember their bills of material. Plus, here's one statistic that shows just how bad the cybersecurity problem really is. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Space Force might be the newest and smallest military service, but it's moving pretty quickly to start new commands and build up its force. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr attended the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Symposium earlier this week. She got the lowdown on Space Force staffing, and she joins me now in studio. And Alex, let's start with uh, how are they recruiting these guardians? We're not talking about members of the uh, Cleveland baseball team, are we? Well, actually, they have a couple different ways of recruiting guardians. And it's kind of important to point out that as much as the other military services have been talking about all the problems they're having recruiting, Space Force has no problem recruiting. Everybody wants to be a guardian, apparently. They recruit through the other services, and you can do a transfer from another service, and about 83% of guardians come in that way. And then there are the traditional ways you can finish college and join, you can enlist, and there are scholarships available for degrees or certificates. They offer a lot of education programs once you get in, so they get some people that way. And then they do something interesting. They have a career credit transfer, so if you have an expertise that they need, they'll let you come in in sort of a lateral move. So last year they needed cyber professionals, and they offered direct commissions for officers. One guy actually was able to go in as a lieutenant colonel. Gee whiz, do they have to have basic training or any kind of the military stuff that everybody goes through? They get some, but they don't have to do the whole career progression that a normal lieutenant colonel would have gone through. Interesting. And by the way, for the new recruits, the people that are younger, do they share the recruiting mechanism of the Air Force? Because a lot of services they have in common with the Air Force since they came out of the Air Force. So... Guardians get the same basic training you get in the Air Force, the basic military training. That's what airmen get. But it includes an additional Space Force-specific curriculum. That includes 21 hours of instruction covering emotional intelligence, Space Force structure, and senior leader briefings about military doctrine. After the Guardians go through that, then they get into the regular Space Force training. And the training command is called STARCOM. It's Space Training and Readiness Command. They're still I love when they start with the acronym and then back into the words, you know. (laughs) Well, STARCOM is such a Space Force kind of word anyway. They're still developing that training program. Here's Lieutenant General Deanna Burt, who's Deputy Chief of Space Operations. So right now we have a vision statement that was signed by General Thompson last year. Uh, We're working now with all of our partners to include STARCOM, who will eventually be the lead in executing the the National Space Test and Training Center Uh, They will work with us. Uh, We're working on the strategy document and the requirements of what all is entailed. Good thing she remembered General Thompson there. And what about the infrastructure required to train guardians? Because if they are learning specific space subjects, you have to have some access to what's going on in space and the signals and the satellites and so on. 
That's an important question, and everything's so new and so evolving that they're still kind of building out the facilities and the programs to train the guardians. And I'm actually hearing some frustration from Space Force leaders because they have guardians and they have jobs to do, but they really don't have all those pieces put together. Here's General Byrd again. There is no one in here who's grown up in any service that all the other warfighting domains have test ranges and they have training ranges, whether it's Fort Hood, it's Nellis. Uh, the Space Force needs the same. So how do we get to uh, what I am responsible for as the COO under General Saltzman's or the Space Force's LOE number one, which is delivering combat ready forces, is that orbital test and training infrastructure, or OTTI. And what would that exactly consist of, did she say? What they really need is simulators. I mean, even the Army at this point is, is using those for training, but Space Force in particular isn't going to train in real space most of the time. They're going to train in sort of virtual reality video game setups. So they really like gamers because gamers come in with all the abilities they need for that training. Here's what General Burt had to say about it. The keys here will be, I think uh, General Saltzman has talked very heavily about we experience our domain virtually. We as the Space Force do not get to touch, feel, or see the threats in our domain, unless you're an astronaut on the ISS. Uh, you're, you're not in the domain physically to sense it. And there's only three or four of them at a given time anyway. They can't fit any more astronauts on there. So the Space Force has developed a lot of things in parallel because it was spun out. Even the uniforms and the patches had to be developed at the same time they were figuring out their structure. Is there a challenge here in developing this training program? I imagine that's still something of a work in progress, Alex. It's not only a work in progress, but it's something that's constantly changing and evolving. So they do talk about it being a, mar a moving target in that way because of the rapidly changing technology. Here's a good example. Last weekend, it was kind of big news. Space Force launched 10 of 28 satellites they've only recently acquired, and they have more in the works. They're smaller, lower-cost satellites. They, they call them LEO, Low Earth Orbiting Satellites, and they're basically for communication. But as General Burt points out, they really don't have guardians trained to operate the satellites. How are we going to do that? Do we have the trainer that's going to prepare the operators to deliver those combat ready forces? Are they ready to take that on when Dr. Turnier turns over the keys? Now he's saying he's going to give us the driver too, that's great. But the operators, the military oversight, what is inherently governmental is going to have to understand that system and have trained with those contractors uh, in order to effectively declare that system initial operational capability and then force present that to the combatant command. That's interesting because they're using commercial technologies that are already employed by the private sector. I'm guessing that the satellites that were launched, if it was a fleet of them, were CubeSats, you know, small boxes the size of egg crates, very powerful, easy to get up into low Earth orbit, as you mentioned. And these are operated by contractors and companies offering services all the time. These would be turned over to Space Force after commercially being launched, and then they become inherently governmental. That's right. And the training for them at this point is going to have to be contractors until they can set up a system where they can train their own people. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, here's one statistic that shows just how bad the cybersecurity problem really is. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Several federal agencies track and try to do something about the cybersecurity threat. Among them, the Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center, known as DC-3. Its vulnerability disclosure program started back in 2016. And how many reports do you think it's issued? A hundred? Six thousand? Wait till you hear how many. Here's the DC-3's Director of Vulnerability Reports, Melissa Weiss. And Ms. Weiss, how many reports have you put out since 2016? Well, we have surpassed 45,000 since 2016 from 39, over 3,900 crowdsourced ethical hackers. Basically, we do count it every 5,000, but this was pretty significant to us. One of the things that happened is during COVID, we saw an amazing uptick in reporting. Pre-COVID numbers averaged about 300 reports a month. The first year of COVID, we went up to about 900 a month. And in the second year of COVID, we went over 2,000 a month and averaged out at at least 1,500. So we wanted to count that meteoric rise over the last two years. And now as we're normalizing back down to pre-COVID numbers, we just wanted to celebrate how much growth we've had in that short span of time. All right. Well, now that we've admired the numbers, let's back up a step. Tell us about the vulnerability reporting program that you direct. What vulnerabilities do you look at and how does this all get generated? Yes. So um, a little of our history is that we came out of the Hack the Pentagon program back in 2016, and it was a bug bounty event. What happens with bug bounties is uh, everybody at the end of them high fives and they get the big payouts. But then you're left with all the vulnerabilities. And at the time, Ash Carter, the SecDev, was asking, well, who's going to take care of these remediations? And so that's how DC3 was tapped for the vulnerability disclosure program. So we are codified in the 8531.01 DODI manual as the sole focal point for all vulnerability reporting to the Joint Force Headquarters Doden and U.S. Cyber Command. We also have the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency regularly issuing vulnerability reports and patches coming out. Do you find that you are also sometimes reporting the same things? We have very unique lanes in the road than CISA, basically because we are focused solely on the Doden. And a lot of what we uh, is reported to us are common weakness enumerations, or CWEs, not necessarily the CVEs or common vulnerabilities. So it's a very different mindset. We're looking at the broad picture uh, on the Doden. And also last year, we were given a big scope expansion in the early years, we were looking only at DOD websites. Last year, we were actually looking at all publicly accessible DOD information systems and networks. So we ostensibly say that we've gone from 2,400 units to about 24 million units overnight. So we're looking at very exquisite things. Well, besides websites, what are publicly accessible DOD systems? It could be industrial control systems, mobile devices, a broad range of different things. If it touches the network, it's available to us. And we should define the term DODIN. You're referring to DOD Information Network. That's kind of a yes, sir. Pentagonish yes, sir. type of term for something that every agency <laughs> has. We're yes. speaking with Melissa Weiss. She is director of the Vulnerability Disclosure Program at the Defense Department's Cyber Crime Center, the DC-3. And how do the vulnerabilities get known? I mean, what's what's the mechanism? Do people say, "Hey, Melissa, I've got this. 
Well, what happens is we're using crowdsourced ethical hackers out of 45 different countries all around the globe. We're not giving them any special accesses, hence the publicly accessible portion of our, our scope. And uh, what they're doing is, sure, they might be running some scans or doing basically adversary emulation. They're using the same TTPs uh, that the bad guys would be using, but they're hacking for good. This is a see something, say something program. It allows them to um, enter it into our front-end system, which happens to be by HackerOne, which is a third-party product. And then we ingest that multiple times a day into the our DOD network, which is on our vulnerability report management network, which we lovingly call Vermin. And that brings it into the federal <laughs> space. As these reports are worked through the system, through the workflow, they'll move up to the SIPR. Uh, and so that's the secure internet uh, protocol. And uh, those will be worked and sent through over to the system owners. The system owners will be tapped by Joint Force Headquarters, Doden, SMEs on that side of the fence. Once they've made those remediations, they can send it back and say, okay, we want to close our report. We will revalidate that information before we close any report. And the people that are doing the ethical hacking for you, are they DOD employees? Are they contractors? Are they volunteers who also knit caps, you know, from Maine or something? Or who are they? Oh, like I said, sir, there are 3,900 entities across the globe. So, no, they are not DOD employees. And that's the uniqueness of the program, really taking a look at that crowdsource ethical hacking. And we were the first federal VDP program uh, to be stood up. It was pretty unique in 2016. You can imagine folks are a little incredulous, but I think we've proven that it's a success story, and that's why you do see things like the BOD 2001, the Binding Operational Directive 2001 that came out from CISA asking the other federal entities to stand up VDPs. But we're definitely the grandfather and the success story. And as you explained, there is a mechanism for ensuring that the vulnerabilities are known to the systems owners and they get a chance to close them. So does that mean out of 45,000 reports, only a couple of hundred are still open at a given moment? Well, not every report that comes in the door is actionable, is how we term it. Uh, so one of the things that uh, benefit that we provide for Joint Force Headquarters Doden is we're skimming off and analyzing in the validation and triage process of what is actually something we would call a vulnerability against SRGs, 800, the NIST 800-171, and so on. So we look at it from a DOD perspective. Is this truly a vulnerability? If it's not actionable, we will just close that out as a non-actionable report, or um, we might close it out as informational only. Keep in mind, too, that the researchers are not being paid. They are being granted reputation points. So in this process, it's not costing the taxpayers dollars to give out these awards like in a bug bounty. They are getting these reputation points that help them climb those leaderboards at the hacking companies uh, that then they can be invited to those more lucrative projects. All right, but maybe they could get a Starbucks certificate or something once in a while, a five-bucker. Not <laughs> well, in the budget. We, 
<laughs> well, what we do is we recognize them every month. We recognize the best report that has come in as our researcher of the month. And at the end of the year, when we do our annual report, we award uh, to the researcher of the year, and we give them a pretty cool little swag package. All right. Well, that sounds good. Something with some uh, camouflage on it. How do you explain the rise in numbers of reports coming in from the pandemic? Because the pandemic didn't itself affect information systems. No, but it did affect the researcher community. If you take those cheetah dust fingered, monster drink drinking uh, researchers and hackers and you lock them in their domicile, guess what they're going to do? While we were all watching Netflix every day, they were scanning the network and finding those vulnerabilities. But do you wonder now that the numbers are coming back to normal historically that you're missing thousands and thousands of vulnerabilities? to keep in mind that a lot of other vulnerability programs have also sprung up in the last two years. And we we anticipated that that would probably be the case after the BOD uh, was instituted. So there's a lot of different opportunities for the researcher community. You know, they can be looking at private sector. They can be looking at the, the DOD. So I think it's a natural progression. Melissa Weiss is director of the Vulnerability Disclosure Program at the Department of Defense Cybercrime Center, DC3. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, not even the United States can win a war if it runs out of ammunition. But first, how DHS encourages software startups to remember their bills of material. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If you buy or approve the acquisition of software for the government, you probably already know you're going to have to deal with something called the Software Bill of Materials, or SBOM, as part of understanding what you're getting. Now the Science and Technology Directorate of the Homeland Security Department is aiming to help with the whole software provenance and supply chain issue. It's calling this the Silicon Valley Innovation Program. Here with details, the program's technical director, Anil John. Mr. John, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you. Tell us what this program is all about. It, uh, you're partnering across government here, uh, other parts of DHS, and what are you trying to accomplish? Sure. The Silicon Valley Innovation Program was stood up about six or seven years ago because uh, the department knew that it was having trouble reaching you know, technology and start talent from the startup community, you know, not just in the U.S., but globally as well. So we are a program that was stood up in order to find global you know, technology and talent from the startup community to solve the problems of the department. And in this particular area, we are partnering with, obviously, one of the components of DHS, CISA, in order to sort of help the ecosystem in providing visibility into software supply chain in general across a wide variety of areas. And you're looking for people to hire into the government or to just do research for the government to help it understand these issues of supply chain and software? We're actually not, even though we are part of the S&T directorate within our DHS, SVIP tends to be more on the shaping of product side rather than pure R&D. So the projects that we are involved in, that which includes you know, this, which we call the Software Supply Chain Visibility Tools Project, 
is very much about shaping commercial products in order to meet the needs of government and the broader industry in general, uh, such that it is available not just to DHS, but also to the broader market in order to leverage as well. In that area, as you noted, it tends to be very much about putting into place contracts with startup companies in order to shape their products, in order to build capabilities that can be used by government agencies. And it is not about hiring people. And what are some of the qualitative or quantitative, whatever, differences in how the government would need to have supply chain, software supply chain visibility versus what industry might need? Our thesis here is that it should not be different, right? We all source software from the same place, the broader market that exists around software. We all use commercial software, whether you're in the private sector or in government. So what is really, really important for us is to make sure that that software, whether it is using open source components, closed source components, and things like that, are built in a manner that provides visibility and transparency into it. So I don't consider the way that software is used within government to be any different than where a way that it would be used in a in a Fortune 500 or in a mid-size or a small-size company. Because there are so many companies developing software, that's what startups basically do in Silicon Valley nowadays. They don't develop new silicon. Are you trying to generally reach them all with some point of reference or how do you how do you get at the breadth of what's happening in software for sure you know so that sort of leads directly to what we articulated uh, in partnership with CISA into the community and what we are looking for here right and i think you know, at the, at the broad umbrella is very much about providing visibility into software supply chain components, but we sort of broke it up into a variety of what we call technical topic area. We fully believe that there needed to be some foundational open source work that needed to be done in order to provide translations between different uh, representations of SBOM. You know, I think everybody uses the term SBOM, but within the software development and community itself, there are multiple ways of how to create an SBOM. So we wanted to make sure that we, you know, funded some work that basically created a foundational open source library that provide translations across multiple SBOM formats that could be used by the government, used by the private sector, and used by anybody that wants to, you know, leverage that. And building on top of that, we actually wanted to have the companies build capabilities across the entire software development lifecycle. So how do you sort of integrate SBOM directly into the build pipeline, whether it is integrating into the continuous integration pipeline that a company might have in order to build software, whether it's integrating into the, the software code repositories that are out there, then moving into ensuring that if you are an organization that's consuming that, how do you sort of tie what the software components are to potential vulnerabilities that currently exist. So providing some sort of visualization that brings those two together. And those are, again, some of the technical topic areas, but even more than that, you know, we are a program and a partnership with CISA. We were not interested in admiring the problem any further. We actually wanted to you know, sure. provide capability, for example, that developers who work in software IDEs, you know, they had the ability to directly ingest this capability directly into them. So there is a work stream that is focused on that. And last but not least, if you're an administrator within an organization, um, one of the software components that you use is Seam software. So how do you integrate SBOM visibility and vulnerability visibility directly into that? So those are all, 
I would say work streams that we put out in the solicitation on what we want capabilities for. Okay, and just define SIEM for us one more time. So SIEM is security information event management. This, this tends to be more not developer-centric, but more, more administrator-centric sure. in an IT department. So we wanted integration with that type of capability for providing visibility for both vulnerabilities and SBOM information to that particular segment of the audience as well. And tell us how the program works. I mean, what do you actually do to inculcate this type of thinking of developing open source SBOMs organically as you develop programs? How do you get that word out and ask people to actually do it? Sure. The SVIP program actually works in four phases. Phase one tends to be we've all met companies and people who have beautiful resumes who couldn't ship anything if their life depended on it. <laughs> so phase one for us is basically the ability to put into place you know, multiple contracts with multiple companies simultaneously in order to solve the same problem to understand who can actually walk the talk, who can actually deliver a capability itself. Then if they are able to you know, show us their approach to solving the problem, show us a minimum viable product that actually has a clear understanding of their approach to solving a problem, we invite them to a next phase where the full capability is built out at that point in time. So this is capabilities, obviously, you know, contributing to the, the open source piece, contributing to building the integration with IDEs, uh, visibility tools, scene products and the like, and that is phase two. And if that goes well, because we tend to be not a research program, but a program that shapes products for operational deployment into the op environment. Uh, in phase three, I throw a red team at them, right? So this is full security and privacy evaluation of what they have built. It could be in this particular case, uh, we fully expect to do you know, full end-to-end -end code review of the open source components themselves. But, you know, companies are building on top of the open source components, which products that they want to sell into the marketplace. We will obviously, you know, as under NDA, test their products as well, because it gives them confidence when they, you know, go and sell this. Then last but not least is in a phase four of the SVIP program, our operational components within the department have the ability to, you know, test that product in an operational setting, and at the end of it, two things happen. One of them is the product becomes ready, a real skew of the product becomes ready in the market, such that we can buy it or anybody in the market can buy it. Any sure. DHS in particular has the ability to directly acquire that technology from that company at that point in time as well. Because I was going to ask, what's the incentive for them to do what the Science and Technology Directorate of Homeland Security and CISA would like them to do? Because uh, I would think you got to be interested in buying it for one thing, because they could say, well, golly, this is a commercial product. Government's going to be 5% of my business, but 50% of my work. Why should I? That is precisely why our program was set up, right? We actually do not want a government -y solution. We do not want the companies that we work with in order to pivot into government and you know, uh, provide a capability that is solely of use by the government. So our, uh, for lack of a better word, our pitch to the startups that we work with is, we have interesting set of problems that we need to solve. You have very interesting technology we believe can help solve it. We will give you some funding in order to bake in the solution to our problem into your product. And what we want you to do is take it out into the market and make it successful so that you are actually providing that capability to the broader private sector. And if you are able to do so, we would be happy to buy that technology as well because it is just as usable for us. So. 
for us, it is a combination of don't depend on the government for the care and feeding of your software. You want to be sustainable in the marketplace. And second, we have a, at least for this particular solicitation, we have a two-tier model. We expect them to contribute to a foundational layer that is open source, and we expect them to build value-added capabilities that are on top of it, which are obviously paid products that people would actually pay for. So that is the incentive and the approach to ensuring that products actually exist sure. rather than you know admiring the problem. And how many companies are you working with? So th- this is where I need to be very careful, simply because, uh, let me back up a second. We Our solicitation was back in October, very competitive solicitation. I would say that more than 25 companies applied uh, you know, after to the pro- project itself. We have selected somewhere between greater than five, less than 10. And the I am tap dancing around it simply because the official announcement has not come out yet on who has been awarded that that will come out over the next 30 days or so. And there'll be full visibility into that. So, you know, more than five, less than 10. And you, But you had sufficient response to the solicitation that you feel this is something that resonates. Oh, my goodness. Yes. You know, it's like like I said, you know, 25 plus companies from all over the world applying to the project with uh, really, really interesting ways of solving the problem. And, you know, one of the one of the ways that we try to solve the problem within SVIP is to we multi-track. We fund multiple companies simultaneously to solve the same problem because we do not want to get caught up in the echo chamber of just one solution. So a diversity in thought, diversity in the team, diversity on what their background is really has an impact on the quality of their solution. So the ability to you know, select from a multitude and fund multiple ones in order to solve the problem has been really helpful to not just us, obviously, and more importantly, to our you know, component partners at CISA. All right. Well, we'll look for that announcement and find out who that five to ten companies are. Anil John is technical director of the Silicon Valley Innovation Program within the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, not even the United States can win a war if it runs out of ammunition. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Jerry, I guess we should start with the idea that uh, maybe the Ukraine situation has shown us something in stark reality that people might have known of but didn't really pay that much attention to. That's correct, Tom. It's great to be back with you. The fact of the matter is is we just don't have enough industrial-based capacity for the challenges facing us today. And this is, as you, as you allude to, has been known for some time, but the Ukraine situation showed in stark reality that, I mean, if we're supporting um, allies uh, and partners in, in a conflict and that depletes our armaments and munitions stockpiles, that really is very problematic for a major contingency in, impacting our forces. And just an operational question. I mean, there are stockpiles of everything from, you know, nine millimeter handgun ammo to missiles and javelins and so forth. A lot of that is used in practice and training, correct? So is there a constant replenishment to keep it at a sort of ever normal level in 
Yes, there is. I mean, and a lot of in training, they use training rounds in general, so that they use less of the high explosive that you would use actually in combat. Or they do the, do those once in a while. But the the challenge has been is look in the pitch and yaw of how we procure munitions year over year. The change in how many munitions of different types we buy changes as much as fifty percent. So can you imagine if you're running a government program, or if you're an industry, if you're trying to produce these weapons? You know, this kind of you know, whipsaw year to year, you just cannot, that's not one way to run a railroad, and um, that's something that needs to be addressed. And is there a certain level that they need or that they feel there should be in the stockpile at a given time, and does the stuff go stale such that you have to rotate it yeah. periodically? Yeah, there is. That, there absolutely is that. You can't. You can only stockpile for so long. So, uh, you know, essentially we just need to um, start pr- producing more in a number of different ways. And this is, goes beyond munitions. It goes to even end items. You know, we, we produce uh, F-35s, you know, the, uh, the fighter jets. And, and the someday and, they may work. Yes. <laughs> That's true. But, you know, they're producing them as quickly as they can, but still it's not enough. You know, if you, if you look at the models of unclassified models of scenarios in major conflict, I mean, those, you know, we would lose half or more of our um, fighter jets, in, you know, in a couple of weeks, you know, because of the the, uh, the modeling. So we don't have enough ready kind of systems to uh, for major contingencies. That's and using clear. a platform like that, say, as an example, an average budget might say, well, this year you can add 300 f 35 or sometimes yep. it's 600 and sometimes they pause it mm-hmm. but say just for purposes of argument 500 mm-hmm. they're authorized to to buy in a given fiscal year, how long does it actually take to make those 500? It takes a while. They're producing, I think, right now. Don't quote me, but it's in the kind of the 170 per year, and that's a full rate production. You've got three final assembly and checkout locations around the world: one in Japan, one in Italy, and then one in Fort Worth. And they're producing the maximum they can. So to raise that, you have to add to a production line, which is is going to co- take some time. Yeah. So it seems like there's a mismatch between acquisition and supply philosophy and the reality of what would happen if, say, a Straits of Taiwan conflict actually engaged the United States. Right. If you look at it, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Dr. Bill LaPlante, recently stated this. It was like, you know, during the kind of late 80s, we were spending 7% of GDP on defense. We're spending about 3% now, right? So when you have that, that, that puts it in stark reality. So we just don't have, and we've spent the last 20-plus years focusing on cost and efficiency to produce, you know, Lean Six Sigma and so on. So we're producing the best systems just enough to meet the program needs, but then that's it, right? So you try to, when you try to squeeze that much, then if you want to increase capacity, it's harder to do. So we're not producing enough, and that has to be increased across the board. But it's not just system, but it's also like how we fight. So the, the, another thing I talk about in my piece is, is the importance of like, how do we partner platforms with unmanned systems, like uh, UUVs, underwater unmanned vehicles, UAVs, and so on. So how do you partner them at F-35 with with, with unmanned aircraft and likewise with subs and so on. So these are the kind of ways you can get more capability um, um, using kind of uh, more treadable systems. We're speaking with Jerry McGinn. He's executive director for the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. And, of course, the bigger the platform, the more kind of sclerotic it really is. I mean, you look at carriers as the ultimate platform. It takes 20 years from keel laying to when you can actually put it into service. And it's hard to believe this is the same nation. I mean, we built 14,000 B-24 bombers and about 12,000 B-17 bombers. 
just in the space of three and a half or four years in right. World War II. Do you envision that kind of capacity ever be needing? I mean, is that... It's a, it's a great point, Tom. And there's people talk about you know, rebuilding the quote-unquote America's arsenal, you know, so so we go back to the Liberty ships and these kind of, you know, tremendous capabilities. I don't quite see that, but what I, what I recommend is that we relook the model of the MRAP, the mine-resistant anti-personnel vehicle from the Gulf War, where then Secretary of Defense uh, Bob Gates said, is like, listen, I want survivable vehicles. I need multiple produced and I need to buy this time. And so the requirements were much less and there were multiple producers. It cost money, but you produced more, you had multiple producers, so you had a much more lively industrial base and then they delivered and it saved lives. We're going to have to go to that kind of model where we kind of start producing multiple systems or ways that you can produce multiple systems so we have the industrial base that we need to support it. Because right now we are not there. Yes, because I guess the philosophy has been fewer but really smart and therefore survivable and that will take care of us. But there's also a certain power in simply mass, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, we, we definitely have the capabilities. That's been our focus. But capacity is uh, is in and of itself really important, um, and we, we do not have it. This, as China, is doing large volumes of pretty much everything. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that that's where, the, you know, the pacing threat and, you know, to be able to face that, you know, and the logistical hurdles and so on, we, we just have to have more capacity to be able to address that threat. And let's talk about procurement for a moment. There was the 809 commission, and some of those things have been followed. Some of them are still on the shelf. Then there's the whole budgeting, planning program execution yep. review, and there's some recommendations out on that. Mm-hmm. But the Pentagon's got to move quickly that's correct. on some of these I mean, things and can't take 10 years for reform. Right. That's correct. I mean, and I think some of this, you know, there are pieces here and there. Like like you say, budget reform needs to happen because right now it's two and a half years from the time of an idea till you can actually start executing. You know, we've got to be able to, to condense that in certain areas. Uh, you've got to be able to, um, uh, you know, acquire systems when you need them at time to need and not, you know, not have detailed requirements where you spend two and a half years developing the exact right thing. We need to be able to iterate, you know, field, iterate, field, test, iterate, and and execute. So we just have to be do more of that. And th- these things are starting to happen, but we just need them to accelerate and be more on the scale that we need to, the, the threats we face. And then there's the environment. I mean, say in the 60s and 70s, the Vietnam era and later, there were definitely political arguments about what we should spend on defense. Mm-hmm. But within those arguments, the country could afford things. It was a matter of philosophical choice. Mm-hmm. Now, when we see the interest on the national debt pretty soon will exceed the defense budget, and neither Social Security nor Medicaid or Medicare are really solvent in the actuarial sense. We're having just kind of an environmental crisis of affordability because the gross domestic product is going to be smaller than the debt pretty soon. Does that figure into this at all? You know, it does in a certain sense of prioritization, right? You know, half of discretionary spending is, is, uh, is defense. But as you, as you allude to, the, the, the amount of discretionary spend is decreasing. That, that piece of the pie is not what it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because of debt and because of um, we're, you know, the deficit spending. So, and 5,000 uh, people a day coming onto Social Security. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it it, uh, it does it, it makes it harder, but the the threat is is as stronger stronger than it than it um, has been, and you know that was really kind of closely seen by what um, uh, Mr. Putin did in, in Ukraine, and uh, you know then we, and then for us it's you know the challenge in Taiwan and, and other places. And I guess one of the points that you make too is by allied, that is to say, 
you know, some of these NATO nations could step up a lot more than they have, even in the Ukraine situation. Yeah, no, I, I think the the part part of um, there's been a focus on increasing manufacturing and industrial base capacity in the U.S. and that's been really good. The the challenge is, you know, is that we can't do it all here, um, and we, you know, and some comp- countries or have a competitive advantage in terms of mining or whatever capabilities. So we should really embrace that and work with our close partners and allies, the the Brits, the Aussies, the Japanese, and so on. And um, you know, we're already producing some systems with. With them, you know, the F-35 is one of them. You know, it's like I said, it's being produced and delivered in Japan and Italy. More of that will, will help all, you know, help our, our partisan allies because, you know, because if we start producing, let's say, you know, unmanned systems and submarines in, in Australia, you know, Australia is one of our closest partners, and that is in and of itself a threat to, um, to say something to the Chinese. So, so there you're getting. You, you, if we do things, as we build as an allied kind of uh, build as a, as an approach, you know, we get more kind of benefit for for us, for the United States, as for well as for our partners by kind of working across with uh, those those countries. Too bad Putin didn't invade France. That would have woken everybody up, huh? Yeah. That. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> won't go there today. All right. Jerry McGinn, Executive Director for the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Tom. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, April 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how DHS encourages software startups to remember their bills of material. Plus, here's one statistic that shows how bad the cybersecurity problem really is those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, agencies still have trouble staffing up with cybersecurity employees. Now there's yet another way the Office of Personnel Management is trying to help out. A pair of cyber workforce dashboards will launch soon. OPM says they'll help agencies better understand their skill gaps. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman in studio with me. And so two new separate dashboards, what will they show? And what will they help people do besides get a better understanding of how horrible the problem really is? OPM is splitting this project into two different dashboards. The first one is going to be public-facing, so anyone will be able to look at it. And that'll show a bigger overview of the federal cybersecurity workforce. The other dashboard that OPM is mapping out right now, it's agency-specific. So internal agency staff will be able to look at that dashboard. And that second one is going to provide a lot more granular detail about cyber staff for different agencies. You can look at things like attrition rates, employees' age, their education levels, how much they're being paid, if they're eligible for retirement. And all of this can be filtered down through different job categories. So instead of just looking at cyber employees more generally, you can find different staff members based on their specific role or their area of focus within cybersecurity. 
So these dashboards will give people a more fine-grained and detailed picture of what's going on, but how does OPM think that'll actually help them get those cyber bodies in there? They're hoping that this is going to help agencies with their long-term workforce planning. So taking a look at that sort of granular detail is going to give agencies this picture, OPM hopes, of you know, where are their gaps in their staff? Where do they maybe need to address specific skills that they're having trouble with and understand also things like pain points in the hiring process? So one area, for example, looks at how applicants and hiring managers are, how satisfied are they with the hiring process? So you can find specific areas and fine tune based on that. Jason Bark, OPM's Deputy Associate Director for Strategic Workforce Planning, explained more. They can really go in and drill down deep and do some benchmarking and some comparisons to understand if their workforce looks like other workforce, what those important trends are, how are we measuring time to hire, are we hiring in a very um, efficient and effective way, are we losing quality applicants um, because they're going somewhere else because we could not hire in a timely way? What is our attrition? What does our quit rates look like? How does that impact our cyber workforce? And are we losing key skills? And where did this idea originate, the whole idea of dashboarding things? The idea came from OPM's plan that they want to get more data specifically on the cybersecurity workforce. There was legislation in 2015 called the Federal Cybersecurity Workforce Assessment Act. And one of the requirements from that bill was that agencies had to code every single federal occupation as either cyber or non-cyber. And so OPM has taken that data and determined that there are 52 different types of cybersecurity roles and a total of 140,000 employees in government who are working within those roles. Bark explained more. Before we led this effort, there was really no way of knowing exactly where cyber work was taking place in the federal government. And this was a key aspect to the first step of really workforce planning and understanding how we get that top talent. By understanding this, we're able to conduct targeted recruitment for specific skills rather than just a blanket approach and kind of hoping that we get the skill that we need. All right. And now these dashboards are being established. They'll be rolling out shortly. Do they feel that that fulfills the information needs they really have, or are there still gaps and still more data gathering here? There is one slight hang-up with the dashboards here. There is no actual real-time data on these dashboards. It's going to be about a three- to five-month delay between when something actually happens at an agency before it populates into that dashboard. And Sarah Brickner, who is an OPM program analyst who was involved with the creation of the dashboards, explained why. I think it can be used for your your general analysis around that. Um, Unfortunately, yeah, we can't do real-time data because it's just not available to us within the um, EHRI database. It's supposed to be so you can use it for your workforce planning needs. And yeah, there will be a delay, but I think when you're trying to do your workforce planning, there you're doing it very a lot of months and ahead in advance. So I, I think that it should be helpful in that regard. Well, yeah, you can also go around and count noses and ask your different units, what do you need? And with a clipboard, frankly, and probably be ahead of that dashboard. All right, well, let's hope the best for it. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. OPM's got a lot of things cooking, though, too, doesn't it? 
It does. There are several other programs or areas that OPM is focusing on specifically to try to help agencies with their cybersecurity staff. One of those things was just recently OPM issued guidance about something called the Federal Rotational Cyber Workforce Program. That's a new program that's coming up later this year, and it's basically going to let different cyber employees potentially rotate to different agencies for six months to a year to get new skills. Bark explained more about the program. We think this is going to be critical to continue to develop skills in our cyber workforce. The program will go into effect this year, and it will allow employees from one federal agency to rotate to another federal agency, learning important skills, not only for their own growth, but for new ways of doing things at other agencies, and then bringing that back to their home agency. We see this as very valuable to continue to build those skills and for agencies to collaborate and learn from each other. And that's how it's supposed to work. I guess the question is, if someone rotates too often, will that foul up the dashboard data because they could be triple counted or something? Someone, or I don't know. These dashboards, then when do they start coming online, Drew? And when can people log on and say, there's my gaps? Bark says that he's hoping these dashboards are going to launch just within the next couple of months. And once they are up, they'll be, they'll be available through a data portal on OPM's website. And interestingly, OPM will also be working on a similar dashboard for this for the entire federal workforce as well. All right. We'll look forward to that. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story and some pictures of what the dashboard is going to look like, actually. You can see it all at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, here's one statistic that shows just how bad the cybersecurity problem itself really is. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.